just because you love it does not mean that it's never going to be work. Have an alarm go off at four o'clock in the morning and your feet hitting the ground by the bed. And if you can accomplish that, meaning feet hitting the ground and not just staying in, that is a level of work. That's a level of discipline that I value. And I think that's what helped me juggle those different items. Welcome to Connection Request. I'm Joel Lehman. Today on the show, I'm talking to Kisa Shreen, an author, speaker, and consultant who has written not one, but two books covering the complex issues of corporate culture, compassion in the workplace, ESG, as well as sustainability. You can see and read her in outlets, including Black Enterprise, Bloomberg, CNBC, CBS, Essence, and more. And she serves on numerous boards and committees, including Series President's Council. As we'll talk about, we also work together in various capacities. I'm the producer of her new podcast, Climate Money Work. We talk about Keese's journey to get to where she is, how she went about writing a book on top of having a demanding day job, and she gives some great advice on the art of consistency, the different kinds of power, and her connections to both Kevin Durant's mom and Dr. Maya Angelou. I also ask for her thoughts on how corporations who pledge support are doing three years after George Floyd's murder. Stick with me for the coda where I talk about teachers and what they have meant to me throughout my life. Finally, I have a small ask for you. If you like the show, would you tell someone about it? I really depend on listeners like you to help spread the word. If you don't like it, that's okay too. Shoot me a note, tell me what I can do better. Okay, here's my conversation with Kisa Shreen. I love to write, I love to research, and I love to bring ideas to life. So that's what I do, who I am. I think of myself as a business woman who is also an author, writer, who's also a podcaster and an entrepreneur. So those are the labels, but behind those labels, what I love to do, bring ideas to life as well as writing and researching. Now, I've got to get a few disclosures out of the way for our audience. You and I have worked together on and off over the years. You are actually a current client of mine. But to be honest, I think of you as so many things. You're a partner, you're a collaborator, you're a friend, and just a really powerful and inspirational force in my life. So thank you for being here and distilling some of your knowledge and inspiration for our audience. I want to talk about lots today, as I mentioned, including your career journey and also the books that you've written, as well as what you're up to now. But let's travel back in time for a minute. Tell us about younger Kisa in Tennessee, I believe. What do I need to know about you then to help me understand the woman that you became? The reliance on community has always been there. It's always been very important. I can remember early, my earliest time speaking in terms of giving a speech. I can remember being given some sort of speech for some sort of holiday and afterwards the preacher touching me on the head and all the women of the church saying, wow, you're really going to be something one day. Just like, oh, well, thank you. But just feeling those sisters, those women who embraced me, the men who embraced me early on, that's been something that it was wonderful then. And it's something that I'm hopeful that I lay seats for now for others. I hope that I can be a part of communities and be a voice and be a supportive voice and be a voice of wisdom. I, I have, it's really interesting. I have some relatives who were talking about the 
ancestors, their aunts and their uncles. And these are my aunts and my uncles. And they said, wow, what happened to those people, those aunts and those uncles who were the wise ones? And my aunt said, oh, we are those people now. And I hear that so frequently. A good friend of mine, who's also a mentor of mine, Wanda Stark, she was very close friends with Dr. Maya Angelou. And she, when Dr. Angelou transitioned, she said, wow, she's such a huge presence and a huge force. And we held really space for the fact that she has emerged and evolved and is in her own right becoming a space and a force for others, a force of good for others. And so obviously we can never be the person who's transitioned or be that ancestor. We can never take over someone else's identity, but it's really important to understand the importance that you can hold in someone's life in a community the role that you can have in the community and to really walk into that with pride in who you are. And that's what I am trying to embrace at this point in my life, having the pride in who I am and enjoying the space and the communities that allow for that. That's a lovely answer. And you mentioned some really inspirational women in your life. Now, I was just looking at your first book this morning and you dedicated it. By the way, we'll talk about that book in a little bit, but you dedicated it to your mom. And you thanked her for exemplifying curiosity, compassion, and kindness, coexisting beautifully with self-respect, self-love, and power. What did she teach you that you carry with you in your career journey? There is a difference between power and force. And my mom really continues to show me what power looks like and the benefit of leveraging power, which generally comes from inside versus force, which from my definition, the way I see things usually comes externally. And as someone who's worked in business for a number of years, as someone who's worked with community organizations, quiet power, quiet inner strength tends to be something that, that enamors folks that tends to help them to want to support you. It helps you to understand what other people bring to the table, how other people can best use their talents, how to develop things in other folks, as opposed to force, which is a, which is a, it's a pushing. It's Mm -hmm. something that really goes against something else. And whereas power does not go against, but it enables and it empowers. And so she really continues to teach me lessons around enabling, empowering, supporting, as opposed to continuously opposing Mm. and the benefit and how far you can go when you enable and support as opposed to go against or oppose. So that's the lesson from mom. That makes sense. And I, I see a lot of her in you. Now, you, I think, have had a really interesting career, both balancing a really interesting and demanding career in the financial industry across marketing and sales roles. But you're also, as you mentioned, and I'll mention it, a highly accomplished author and host and keynote speaker and an expert and a media figure. How have you balanced doing all these different things? And maybe more importantly, what sort of drives you to operate at such a relentless pace? I don't know if you've heard this, Joel, but I've heard the saying that when you love something, it does not feel like work. And whereas I don't know if that's always the case, sometimes I can love something, you know, it feels like work. (laughs) And I will tell you those cases, how do people, how do I juggle that sort of thing? When I was writing my first book, also working full time, I knew that 
I wanted to put a lot of research. I wanted to talk to a lot of people to get a lot of stories. I knew that would take time. The stories were global. So I knew that would take time outside of my time zone. And what I wanted to do was to be truthful to myself in terms of the best route to go about doing this. I also had a full-time job. Yeah. So I did this by getting up pretty religiously at about four o'clock in the morning. Oh and so in order, yeah, in order to get it done, in order to get it done right, to give myself the time that I needed, but yet to continue to be this business person showing up for this company that I represented and wanting to give them the best as well, I needed to do that. And as I mentioned before, I loved what I did. I loved the book. I love the writing process. But just because you love it does not mean that it's never going to be work. Having an alarm go off at four o'clock in the morning and your feet hitting the ground by the bed, that is, and if you can accomplish that, meaning feet hitting the ground and not just staying in, that is a level of work. That's a level of discipline that I value. And I think that's what helped me juggle those different items. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that first book. As I mentioned and held up, it's called Corporations Compassion Culture, Leading Your Business Toward Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I have so many questions about it but I really want to focus this interview on you, especially in drawing some of those insights. But like, when did you first know that you wanted to write a book? It sounds like you've been a writer for a long time, but when did you know that? And then once you knew that, how did you go about not only writing it, which you told us a little bit about that process, but also getting it published and finding a book agent and all that kind of stuff. So how, first of all, I'll take the writing and then go about the process of getting published and that sort of thing. But, and I do shamelessly plug. So thank you for that. <laughs> the background. In terms of when did I decide to write a book? I've always, I've enjoyed writing. I've always been working on a project. I can't say there was a point where I said, okay, today I'm going to shift my focus and focus on the book. There's always been that sort of writing in me. There's always been those stories that have surrounded me, whether yeah. it be my story or stories of family, friends, others in my environment. This book has been in the works for years and it wasn't a formal concept, but it consisted of stories that I told. And for me, it was important to let folks know that they were not alone when they were in a corporate environment and felt that there were Mm. microaggressions. When I wrote the book during the early parts of the pandemic, And when people told me, you know what, my manager put my company has some sort of software on my laptop. So I literally have to have my hands on the keyboard. If I get up to use the bathroom, they clock that. I heard several stories like that. And I wanted people to know that they weren't alone. I also wanted to give them a voice so they could share some things in a very comfortable environment. So that really helped to project what had already been, I think, a bit nascent inside of me, the seeds to create this story for today's time. Yeah. So that's how the book came about. And in terms of the process about publishing, I am very lucky. I have a dear friend of mine who is a published author. I shared with her my book proposal and I said, you know what? I love to talk to you about how to talk to your publisher. She checked out my book proposal, gave me some really good feedback, got in front of the publisher and they said, okay, let's go, let's work. And I think I tell that story because many people have come to me to say, Kisa, I wanna write a book, I wanna write a book. And when you had someone who's been such a sponsor and an advocate for you and read a book proposal, you, it really puts you in a position to say, Hey, I want to pay this for it. And so I do open the door for folks who say, I want to write a book. I'd be happy to chat with them about the proposal. And it's really important for us to do that sort of thing, to make sure that our stories are told and to make sure that 
we all have access because in many cases, access is an issue. You yeah, don't yeah. know how it's been done, so you can't do it. You don't know anyone who's done it. And so I'm hopeful to end that in my way. It's, I think, even more impressive to me is just like a fan of yours. There are a lot of people out there who say, I want to write a book about all sorts of different things. There are a lot of people who go out and actually write a book. There are some people, much smaller subset, who get it published by a firm as, as sort of reputable as Wiley. But then you not only did ticked all those boxes, but it just the acclaim that it received for your first book project. I just, I think that's really impressive and admirable, but not surprising since I know a little bit about you that just that sort of dedication, that drive all ended up into something really great. But enough praise. Let's talk about the contents of the book a little bit. You, as you mentioned, wrote it during a really tumultuous time in the United States, but also around the globe. We were dealing with an unprecedented, and that time I really mean the use of that word, global pandemic. We were also grappling with racism in this country and around the world in a really new and different way, I think, from the murder of George Floyd, which happened right here in my hometown. And in that time, a lot of companies made a lot of commitments, didn't they, to do better, both for their people and their communities around the world. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that and Maybe give us a sense, how are companies doing three years on after they made all those commitments? So to your point, there was a time when companies used Slack boxes to show support. On their social media handles, they would, instead of having their logo, they would have Slack boxes and they would have commentary about, we stand in support of this community. We stand in support our allyship. We have allyship with that community. And those words, they do have a place and they are good. It's great to hear the words, but many people saw those actions as performative activism. Mm -hmm. And that is when a leader or a group of leaders, when they perform, they demonstrate through a performance that they are allies, that they are standing with. But if you look at track records, if you look at numbers, if you look at data, the performance or what they demonstrate on social media or on other types of media, that performance does not equal the actual data. So there is no proof that they really have an intention to drive change in the way that they have said they want to drive change. Performative activism is a real thing. And I think that many of us have stories of individuals who we know who are leaders and they are performing, but either they don't know how to actually make the change or they have been unwilling in the past. But I will say this, that when we work on, and Joel and I, we've worked with each other, when we work on a product, a marketing campaign from your perspective, a product from my perspective, we tend to have numbers that show where we started, where we were with each milestone and where we hope to end up with all projects, whether it's revenue, whether it's number of products made, we have numbers. And right now that's generally how we quantify things. When we choose to not apply numbers to something, it's very hard to measure our success. And so until we apply actual hardcore numbers to what we want to achieve, it's going to be challenging for a leader, our leaders to say that they are really hopeful 
to make a difference, that they are actually doing all they can to make a difference. So with my first book, one of the things I really want to focus on was the story, the story behind each person who felt that they were not heard, each person who said that they felt that their firm was not supportive of them because of who they were. I wanted to focus on a story and the narratives of these people and also give my own story. That's a good transition. You write in the book, in the opening of it, a little bit about your experience early on in in business, being a businesswoman. And you don't say this in so many words, at least in the beginning, you probably get into it a little bit later, if I remember correctly. But a lot of the stories you tell are ones of microaggressions, are ones of, I would say, outright racism, but you can correct me if you disagree. And I think in that context, you got involved in what at the time was DEI work. Now, I think we call it DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And you also, I think, just like based on your experiences, I really admire you felt compelled to get involved and do things like education and writing books and helping people understand Will you talk a little bit about those early days and your own experience in the business world and yeah, how it's compelled you forward? I wanted to make sure that from an education standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint, that I did what I needed to do to be successful. And that would be university. That would be taking these exams that you had to take at the time, series seven, series 63, for those of us who are in financial services, taking them and passing them. And there was a thought that when you do those things, when you set yourself up for success, that you will be successful. And what I really had to understand, and I'm hopeful in the book, my story shows that I had to come to terms with, I couldn't let outside influences negate what I knew about myself Hmm. and negate what I knew about my potential. And so what I wanted to do was just to share my story, my issues and how I I did listen to a couple outside horses for a while, but I recognized that wasn't the best way for me to move forward in my career. I really need to focus on changing my inner dialogue. I also needed to protect myself from the energy and the dialogue or conversations from others that did not hold space for who I am and what I could bring to the table. It's important for me, for people to really know their value, to know it and to consistently always have it top of mind, understand understand the importance of that self-talk, understand the importance of listening to people and surrounding yourself with people who reinforce who you are and what you can do and just the excellence that lives inside of you. And so I really wanted to share how that change the trajectory of my life. So not necessarily focusing on those other voices that said things that I didn't need to hear, which I think it's really important to not give space to things that you don't want in your life, but to allow those voices, those people, those communities that really reinforced the excellence in me. And hopefully I can be a part of those communities for other folks as well. As you look back on your career, Kisa, so far, you know, something I think about you and our work together is you sort of always have a plan, right? Like you show up and you're like, all right, here's what we're doing. It's like very detailed, but I'm curious for your own career, how much of a plan has there been? As you think back, how much of it has been planned versus more organic and follow the winds where they may blow? 
That is so interesting that you think that about me. So I have to tell you about this story. I This is how I envisioned myself. Just the other day, I, I live near a duck pond and I was walking by the duck pond and I saw a gentleman who just, it was early in the morning. He just stopped where he was. He was looking at the ducks. And so I wonder what he was looking at. And so I saw this big parent duck with about four other duck, ducklings behind it. And they went into the water. Now the ledge from where they were walking to the water is probably about maybe, I don't know, maybe six inches. So the duck, had to take like a big leap to get into the water. And so the duck took that leap. And then I saw two baby ducks behind and they were just around the edge of that area. And yeah. they looked really hesitant. <laughs> like they didn't know if they were gonna continue to walk or jump in. Yeah. And one duck, you saw him, he just leapt and he just dove head first into the pool. You know what, if I gotta do this, I gotta do it. And he just went there. The other duck was still very hesitant. And it put its foot at the edge and it just slipped and tumbled down into the water. And so the gentleman and I laughed. And so I thought that made me immediately think, you know what? Sometimes the plan is just to jump. Sometimes there is, there's no pitch deck. There is yeah. no precedent. Your plan just has to be just to go forward and jump. And I thought that's how I worked a lot of the times. So it's good to see here that you think you see me differently. I do. Yeah. <laughs> So would you say that that a lot of your career has just been following what feels right in your heart at that moment in time, as opposed to you sat down when you were in college and you said, all right, I'm going to do financial services for 10 years. I'm going to go write a book. I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to no. It's all about it's all about the feeling part. When I yeah. didn't have a plan, I usually go into things with knowledge of what I think I want to do. Yeah. But sometimes those plans just they don't come to fruition. And it's because of things change. I think it's really great to be flexible. Yeah. Um, I think it's really fantastic to, to feel your way into it as opposed to always using the logic side of the brain, and, which is very important. But what does it feel like if logically something makes sense on paper, but my gut, my instinct is telling me that this is not the right place for me. This is not the right move. It's not the right time. I have learned at this point, I've learned to listen to the instinct to get the facts, get the data, have everything from a logic perspective, make sure that I yeah. have that. But when it comes down to making that final decision with the facts and the data and with everything that I would logically follow, if my instinct is telling me otherwise, if my feelings are leading me to feel something that does not resonate, well, then I'm going to go with that feeling. And that's a learned behavior for me. I can't say I've always yeah. that. That makes a lot of sense and I think is a really helpful framework to apply to things. It's funny, I there's a, a mentor of mine from Thomson Reuters who is an SVP. I think I should just bring him sometime on the show to debate this, but he always said, don't think about your next job that you want, but think about the one after that. Yes. And I was always like, like, I think that's great advice, don't get me wrong, but like, I, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in a year from now, much less the job after the job that I want. You know what I mean? So for me, that advice... I'm sure it works great for some people who maybe have a slightly more linear trajectory, right? Or know that they're going to stay at one place for a long time. But that for some reason, just like never quite made sense, at least for me. I wonder what you think about that. Advice. Well, and also too, I can see the again, the logic. I can see the logic in that. But to that, I would say to him or her, my next job hasn't even been invented yet. I'm going to have to yeah. invent my next job. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to work on those things that I need to educate myself on, those things I need to research, and I'm going to get greater knowledge there. And also I'm gonna see 
where the market trends are, what yeah. the market is doing there. Is there a need for that? What, where is the need if there is? And then also what's the market, what's the value of that? So there, yeah. how does the market value that? And again, in each of those touch points, I go into it, not just with the logical side of my brain, but also how does this make me feel? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? How am I responding to what I'm getting? So I think those, it's so layered. There are so many different areas that we really need to, I think, consider when we're looking at careers. It's not just about, to your point, what's the next move look like? What is the economy? What is the economy going to look mm. like in the next couple of years? What are trends in various areas that you're not located in other regions? So there, everything's really connected. And in my roles, consulting with ESG and consulting with sustainability, what I try to communicate is that everything is interconnected. If we want to plan around sustainability, we're mm. going to have to engage legal. We're going to have to engage compliance. They can help us with the regulatory matters. We're going to have to engage technology because they can help us build the platform for this sustainability reporting. We're going to have to engage the business. Everything is so interconnected, whether we're talking about in business or whether we're talking about in life. And so I really try to think about things from different perspectives. What will things look like in the future? What did they look like in the past? What's going on now? As well yeah. as get other people's insight. I like to think, Joel, you're part of my inner circle and I run things by you all of the time. And it's all about getting different perspectives and just coming at things from different angles. I'm honored, by the way, to be part of the inner circle. Speaking of which, now this might be another perception versus reality thing, but let's see. Yeah. I think of you as a master networker something we haven't talked about a lot on the show. And I'll share my own feelings for a long time. I really hated that word because to me, it felt really transactional. That being said, I think I found over time, like I always said, I like building relationships. I like meeting new people. I like asking about who they are. And I kind of realized like, oh, networking doesn't have to be a, a bad word or a dirty word, just for whatever reason, my framework and reference points. But I had some weird aversion to that word. But I think of you as someone who is always building relationships and connections and has a really interesting network. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, how did you learn to do that? And any advice for the rest of us? I like you. I, I just have a different term for what some folks will say. He said, that is the same thing. You're just calling it something else. I think of this community building, community belonging, but to that yeah. point. I love my community, those who are in the inner network, as well as community members who I don't maybe engage frequently enough. But that is very important to me professionally as well as personally. And in terms of how you get that way, I would say just showing up as your best self and doing it consistently. One of the things I like about Kobe Bryant is that he talked about the art of consistency. You can't get a three-pointer like that just off the strength of there was a lucky shot. You can get it maybe once, but you need to always show up like that. Yeah. And that takes practice. That takes repeated engagement. That takes working, chatting with different sorts of people. So no matter what your career is, we're not all WNBA and NBA players, but practicing being, being that person, practicing engaging with different people. I'll tell you for me, what works is to have a morning and evening routine. That's what helps me show up to hmm. do my best self. And you guys say, what does that look like? And it's some strange stuff. I tell you some real strange stuff. One of the things I do most mornings is I will get up and I will get some vitamin D. I'll go outside, I'll say early in the morning, just for a brief walk. I'll come back and I will take a cold shower. Now it doesn't have to be long, but I'll take a cold shower. And that just helps to just get me really pumped and hype. And then I will 
have some gratitude time, which usually consists of a gratitude journal, so journaling, as well as meditation. And then I'll be ready to start my day. I don't think I would have the same level of energy if I got up and immediately checked my phone. If I got up and immediately looked at my email, if I got up and immediately looked at social media, I don't think I have the same level of energy. Each mm. of those things, again, showing up consistently, each of those steps that I take, they all provide a tremendous amount of energy. They help to reinforce my discipline, particularly that cold shower, help to reinforce my discipline. I do the same thing for, I have an evening routine, but the routine is different. But again, going to bed consistently at the same time as much as I can, having time for myself where I do evening yoga, maybe a bit of evening meditation, that's the sort of thing that helps me to show up. So it's not necessarily anything that is 100% career. Oh, I, you know, I always read this paper. I always look at this journal. Those things are very important, obviously. Yeah. I, would, I follow these people on Twitter. Important, please do it. But what helps me show up consistently so I can engage my community, so I can hear my community, so I can provide thoughtful insights to my community is having those things that I do consistently day after day showing up because at the end of the day, I would just want to make sure that I'm better than I was the day before. That is my goal every day. Kisa, what's the goal today? To make sure we are better than we were yesterday every day. Mm. And that's consistent too. So what yeah, helps yeah. me do that? Those routines, they help me show up and be consistent. And the discipline around that really helps and enables me to provide insight and to receive from my community. I really admire that. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about book number two. Now, uh, we were working together at the time, and based on my memory anyway, it wasn't a few months after book number one had come out, you're like, I'm working on book number two. I don't know. Like, tell First of all, like, how quickly after book number one came out did you start? And then will you tell us a little bit about Gambling on Green, your second book? Sure. Well, it's funny that you said that. I remember you were one of the first... Um, people that, that I told, I was, um, you know, I, I told my my management team and I want to tell you as part of the production team for our podcast. And for those who are interested in publishing a book, I'll share this with you. When I wrote the first book, I did not have a firm time in my head in terms of how long I thought it would take me to write it because I'd never written a book before. I spoke with folks who had written books. I just never done it. There's research involved. There's yeah. proofreading. There's editing. And I, I didn't know any of that. And so I was given between, I think I began the book in maybe August or maybe it was July, July. And I needed to have the manuscript and to the editor by the end of October. And hmm. I said, wow, the next time I write a book, I'm going to get longer than that. And I was talking to a friend of mine, said, you should really get a year. I was like, yeah, I really should get a year. I'm going to get a year. He said, and if they don't give you a year, go for nine months. I was like, oh yeah, nine months is fine. And I wanted to work on a book around sustainability because that's sustainability encompasses so much and, and I'll get into that. But I knew that I would need the time to really research it thoroughly and to bring everything to bear that I could. And so I went to the publisher, made my pitch. Hey, I'm really excited about this. Now it's time for this book. There is so much to be done. Really exciting work. Here's my book proposal. He said, it's yeah, we're a go. Let's go for it. I said, okay, you know, this time though, last time I know I had July through October and we we're on the deadline, but this time I know we can get a year, right? He said, maybe not a year. I said, okay, I'm fine with nine months. And so we said, we'll need it in five. I said, done. <laughs> so that's, 
So again, you know, that four o'clock in the morning, I used to get up at four, got shifted up a little bit. But because I've been focused on this area for years now, there was a lot that I was already able to bring to bear. You were talking about the first book. How long had you been right working on this? With Gambling on Green, I will say that it has been in the works for a few years. So I was yeah. not starting from scratch. I wasn't starting from zero. And with Gambling on Green, I want to present the facts that there are some really valid voices that are saying that maybe we should look at ESG, Environment Social Governance. Maybe we should look at it differently. Maybe it is expensive to engage from an investing standpoint, more expensive than any other type of traditional portfolio. And it doesn't yield what it promises to yield. And I will say that's valid because if you look at regulation in the UK, we are the EU, we see that there are different types of green portfolios. There are different mm. types of sustainable portfolios if you look from a financial management, asset management perspective. And, you know, there is a Article 6 versus Article 8, but light green versus dark green. There are indeed ways to measure the level of sustainability of a portfolio. And so that's on the investment side. So we all know about the ESG, woke ESG. That's the argument. As we'll say, there's some validity there. On the sustainability side, there are companies that have resources, loads of resources. They're big companies. So they really can invest in reducing GHG. They can start now and they can have a really amazing 2030 goal that they likely can meet. They can work with not-for-profits. They can work with partners. So they have all the tools needed to reduce GHG, to look at stuff like carbon markets, to engage on from a DEIB perspective to improve their numbers, to get their board involved. So they have these resources, but yet there are some small mid-sized enterprises that don't have those resources that they can't, they don't have a sustainability chief. They don't have an office. They have to engage with consultants. So I wanted to present all of those different sides from the larger companies and how they were able to progress, as well as the small mid-sized companies and how they were able to, using sometimes very meager resources, how they were able to have these amazing sustainability outcomes, as well as the ESG argument that ESG investing really is in some ways greenwashing. And what does it look like to have ESG investing of different types? Because ESG investing is, that's a word that encompasses a lot. There's impact investing, thematic investing. But what does it look like to have ESG investing that's not greenwashing, that really does help, yeah. number one, its investors to realize green solutions and to see benefit from those green solutions. So those are some of the things I wanted to talk about. And again, it's all about storytelling. Just like with my first book, there were leaders who had amazing stories and they needed to be told. And so I wanted to tell those stories with, with a degree of insight that comes from my knowledge being in this industry for a while, as well as tell their stories in a way that folks who are not savvy on sustainability, just because they're not in the profession, who aren't savvy on ESG investing, that they could really understand and really feel that they walk away with a lot more knowledge than they came into it with. So that hmm. was my thought and my goal around Gambling on Green. Okay. I have to ask, yeah. is there a third book in the work? anything you want to share reveal for the connection request audience at this you know time what? you're trying to get an exclusive out of me aren't you i sure am <laughs> in the works right now i have amazing projects that are short 
shorter form projects. And I do invite folks to follow me, check me out on LinkedIn and let me know so I can follow you back, but definitely reach out to get some of that insight. But we're always producing short pieces on LinkedIn, working with corporates as well as not-for-profits to produce these pieces. But in terms of a book level, you'll be the first to know, maybe the second or third, but yeah, I'll keep you posted on that. Sounds good. Actually a good segue. One of those things that people can check you out on is our, I'm going to call it our new podcast, Climate Money Work, a project that you're the host of, and I'm delighted to be producing. Can you tell people a little bit about that? And yeah, what are you looking to to do with that project and who is it for? Yeah. I My thought is that education is the key to progressing most ideas, to have healthy debates to really truly listen to someone who maybe has a different perspective than Mm. you have and to use those things the education different perspectives to use those things to come to a decision and so with climate money work i wanted us to talk about climate issues environmental issues biodiversity issues as well as everything having to do with money whether we're talking about institutional investing big firms our retail investing, as well as work that would be ethics issues, governance issues, inclusion issues, parity, pay parity. I want it to talk about those things with a diverse group of people, investors, not-for-profit professionals, corporations, sustainability leaders, and to get different sides. Because I think with the issues that we're facing now, again, they are so layered. We Mm. have different issues facing the global north than we do the global south. If we look at climate, we have various issues facing Europe versus the US versus the Middle East. If we're looking at demographics, people break us up into millennials and boomers and Z. And now I think there is Z-lennials. I think I heard that term somewhere. And so there are different perspectives and there are different things that we need to consider when we're talking about the state of climate, when we're talking about how we use our money in various regions for various purposes. And we're talking about work and workplace engagement, which is very close to my heart. And I wanted Climate Money Work to be a community where our wonderful, insightful thought leaders and interviewees could talk to these issues, could talk to these different people, these different perspectives, different demographics, so we could simply educate each other. Yeah. We've done a few episodes so far. There's one out in the feed. I encourage everybody to go check it out. Even if you're not directly in the space, I think the issues that you talk about impact all of us in some way, shape or form. And yeah, it's I'm very biased, but I think everybody will learn something if they check it out. Kisa, that makes me think I don't want to I don't want to bring this down too much, but I have an expert on sustainability here. I, I just have to ask you, I think there are so many of us when we think about climate and what is happening in our world. There was a report that just came out recently, right, about how we, we continue to not be on track to achieve climate goals. And that's just one aspect of things that you know about and focus on. What can people listening to this do? if they are feeling a little bit down about the state of our world, particularly as it relates to climate? Everything starts with people. And so even when we're talking about climate, we are talking about how it impacts people. 
negative impacts and what people can do to cause it. So even though many times you hear about it from a corporate perspective or from an investing perspective, corporates are just they're made of people, right? Yeah. Portfolios, people invest in those. So yeah. if someone's feeling like, goodness, I'm down about this, there's something I should do. One of the best tools I think that corporations have, employee resource groups, or some people call them mm-hmm. business resource groups, but they are groups that are owned and run by folks in the organization. And they focus on various communities or, and our various causes. So veterans resource groups, sustainability resource groups. Yeah. Those are groups that you can really grow and empower and they're concentrated. So if you have a sustainability resource group, you can bring together like minds who are all interested in maybe GHG reduction, all interested in maybe carbon offsets. They could all be interested in diversity and inclusion and pay parity, everything yeah. that adds up to sustainability. And you can get resources. I ran a employee resource group, a women's group for a number of years. And one of the things that we wanted to focus on was financial empowerment. And so I knew of a woman who I heard her story, got a chance to talk with her. She's actually Kevin Durant's mom, Wanda Durant. And Just I just throw that in there. No big deal. <laughs> We're talking about resource, employee resource groups. And I yeah. got to meet her, a wonderful woman, but she told me some, some amazing stories about, I had these growing boys who, and we know Kevin grew to be quite tall, but I had these growing kids and there were times when somebody could eat. And so I made the choice that it was gonna be me. She did not eat to ensure that her boys had enough food to eat. Um, And her financial challenges continued to grow and just exacerbate. And she said, I reached a point where I said, I'm really gonna have to do something, you know, about this. So Wanda Durant was to me a wonderful example of someone who had a platform. She was known, her son, Kevin Durant was known, but also she'd actually gone through this level of poverty and found her way through that into a much better situation. I wanted to bring her in and said, listen, Wanda, you have a great story. I'd love to make sure that, you know, some of our team members hear this. Well, we found out that many of our clients wanted to have financial empowerment sessions to understand what they could do, to understand a story behind it. And Mm -hmm. so people really seem to gravitate toward her story. I spoke with a couple of business heads, the head sales and some other businesses, and they said, you know what? Yeah, we talked to our clients. They're really interested in this. Could we bring her here to speak? And I said, of course we can bring her here to speak. But that shows how the power of understanding the importance of an issue, whatever your issue is, whatever you want to focus on, bringing together like-minded people. It wasn't just me. It was a community of us who said, you know what? This is something that we want to tackle this year, really want to understand what we can do to help improve people's financial status, not just our clients, but their clients, our clients' clients. Business head said the same thing. People who were in the resource group said, hey, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. And the value of a resource group, an employee resource group, is to bring together those of like minds who have skills. Some people can market the event. Some people can help fundraise, which is simply getting the funding from the appropriate business business partners or sponsors. And some people can make sure that they organize event plans. So that's the sort of thing that can really drive forward a sustainability mission, having people internally dedicated to it. And I will say this, one of the arguments around employee resource groups is that there's a lot of work involved and that it's a voluntary position. And I am, I think most of us who have served are totally open to talk about 
how employee resource group heads and team members, how they can be engaged around valuing, putting yeah. value on the work they do, because it is work. And we, as we talk about how corporates can move into embracing sustainability and embracing their workplace and workforce specifically, let's think about ways we can start valuing people beyond yeah. the check that they get. And valuing can mean different things to different people. We've both seen stories, haven't we, of, of really great impact from those employee resource groups. But also, as you said, it, it is often like it's unpaid labor, right? Let's just call it what it is. And also, I think there's an interesting dynamic, a couple examples, I think, of, let's say, the Black Employee Network, for instance, the corporation going to them in some ways to get free labor on diversity, equity, inclusion issues when it's like, no, 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 no. Like, yep, we should get input. We should make sure these people are involved, but like, it is not on them to solve those problems. So I'm really glad you mentioned that, but I do think that's a fantastic way to get involved. And a good reminder that usually when you're trying to make impact and do something about the world, you're not doing it alone, are you? You are doing it with others in partnership and in your community. Exactly, exactly. And just from a workplace perspective, as, as you know, workplace engagement, worker engagement, employee engagement, that's very close to my heart because a company is nothing without its people. Yeah. And if we want to continue to see people being more engaged, being feeling that they can be more creative, feeling that they can be more innovative. One key way to do that, whether we're talking about folks who are on an employee resource group or if we're just talking about people who are involved in a regular work project, valuing them in the way that they want to be valued, compensating them in the way they want to be compensated when they go the extra mile or when they, yeah. when they need to really make a difference as a company, when you need to make a difference as a company, understanding the value of your workforce. That's the first place you can start. So looking outside of the workforce, that's great. Those are things that you can do and those are compliments, but looking inside of the people who are in your company, if you really want to make a difference, that's where you can start. And further than that, start with making sure that you value them because when someone feels valued and that can be compensation as well as other things, when we feel valued, we are encouraged to bring our best creativity, to bring our best innovation. And that's when you can design market leading products because you have folks who are productive to the highest level and they're innovative. Mm -hmm. That's when you can start getting into new markets. So treating your workplace well is not just a nice to have, it's something that's a must if you plan to be a company that can be sustainable in the future and that can continue to grow and thrive. Amen. Keys for president. Okay, just a couple questions before I let you go. We're trying something new out on this show, which is each guest leaves behind a question for the next guest, even if they don't know who it is. So uh, the question for you comes from Casey Hall, both a friend and an hey, excellent social media entrepreneur. You might know him. And his question for you is, how do you choose to balance or blend your personal life and your professional life? And the sort of funny and ironic part is this question was answered by him while his young son, Charlie, was jumping up and down in the background behind him. Yeah. So what, what are kind of your philosophy, your thoughts on blending the two? I would say that my personal, my intention, my personal intention always shows up because that's how I choose to begin my day. So my intention goes throughout the day. I don't have one intention for work and then one intention for 
my personal life. My intention is very clear. Today, I will be abundant. Today, I will just exhibit my highest level of knowledge or exhibit my highest level of compassion. And either, even though those may sound very personal in nature, being abundant in the workplace simply looks like this. I got a lot of good information for that conference and I'm gonna send you all a note on Slack just to give you some key things I think the team might be able to take away. That's how you can be abundant. That's how you can overflow in the workplace. So I would say, how do I blend? How do I balance personal and professional? That's the question. I would say that for me, they are integrated and it all boils down to what my intention is and allowing that intention to flow into all areas of my life. Yeah. What a lovely answer. Then paying it forward, if you will, what's a question that you want to leave behind for the next guest? I would love to get the next guest's thought on the importance of interconnectedness between mental and physical. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how you engage for those who are walkers or those who do meditation or yoga, do they see a difference yeah. or does it impact them mentally and from a professional perspective? Great question. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been such a delight to have this conversation with. Um, we get to talk all the time, but I've learned so much about you just in, in the course of this conversation. And I know our listeners will find it really interesting. Before I let you go, is there anything that I forgot to ask you or anything you want to leave behind with our listeners? I think that you got to some of the key questions, but I'll just reiterate. I'll reiterate that if we really want to bring our best selves to our professional lives, we really want to connect and create in our careers, I would say it really starts with the generosity that we show to the people in our corporations. So as I mentioned before, if you're a company, it starts with valuing your people and understanding what they want and what they see as compensation and how they want to be compensated for the work that they do. And if you are a colleague and an individual contributor, not even a manager or not even a person who manages people, but you manage yourself, that could be just being generous with giving insights. And I gave the example of if you go to a conference, just sharing insights with folks. So it's amazing how when you give to that level, it's amazing how it shows up for you. And so I really would encourage us to not even try to make a grand plan around, oh, 10 ways I can give today, but just see the opportunity and just seize the moment, see the opportunity yeah. to be generous and to be abundant with how you approach your colleagues, with how you approach your teammates. See the moments, be very mindful, be thoughtful, listen, and just seize the moment and show up as someone who is a colleague who is abundant. And trust me, it will, you will get it back in wonderful returns. Kisa Shreen, thank you so much for everything. I'll be thinking about this conversation for a long time. Joel Lehman, thank you for having me. I hope you learned as much as I did from that conversation. Isn't she cool? By the way, welcome to The Coda, where I share a little bit more about what's on my mind. And whatever you're doing right now, wherever you are listening to this, I want you to stop for just a minute and close your eyes. Take 60 seconds and think about throughout your life, who has helped shape the person that you are today? 
Go ahead, hit pause on this. Come back to me in a second. Take some time to just reflect on who has helped you along your journey. Now, that was something that a few years ago, uh, a guy by the name of LeVar Burton, who especially millennials probably know as the host of Reading Rainbow, but he's done a bunch of other stuff. Um, he asked a, a ballroom full of content strategy professionals at a conference I was at uh, years ago to do that same exercise. And he actually took that from Fred Rogers, who many of you probably know as Mr. Rogers, uh, an exercise that he used to do. And I'll tell you, when I did that all those years ago, um, for me, I had all sorts of emotions flooding over me as I thought about the many, many different people who have helped me become the person that I am today. I thought all the way back to elementary school about Mrs. Anderson, who gave each and every one of us a hug every day and just made us feel warm and loved. Um, I think about my dad, who taught me piano lessons in elementary school. I'm sure I wasn't the easiest student. I think about my brother, who uh, helped me advance and, and teach me some some things on the trombone uh, that he was learning in middle school. He was a few years older than me. I think about my band teachers in middle school, Kurt Claussen and John Green and Rose Keneally and Joel Furco, and they all just helped me discover my passion for music and help me learn new things and just give me the time and space and support to explore. I think about my theater teachers in middle school, Kate Murphy and, and Jen Parker, um, what they saw in me to sort of take to the stage, you know, and and have what at the time were really fun roles and, and teach really the building blocks of how to act and, and sing and perform on stage. And then in, into high school, I think about my, my choir directors, Judy Sagan and Greg Dama, for, in, for continuing to sort of grow that love of music. But honestly, with all these people, they were also teaching us life lessons about how to be better humans, as all the best teachers do. I think about Bill Henry and Ben Harloff and Frank Pasquarella and Rich Berggren, band teachers who, who um, helped me develop into a leader in those spaces. Um, when they uh, helped me become a drum major, they, they helped me realize, again, that I just had like a passion for... Um, not only music, but um, helping my peers grow and directing and conducting. Um, and I think a lot, I think all the time about Scott DeRocher, who I, I do not know what he saw in me, but um, he saw the makings of somebody who could, who could, I think, play leading roles on stage. And um, he taught me so much about acting and, and performing that I still think about. Um, as you heard me talk about in my podcast with, with Risa Dorkin, uh, he tied sandbags on my feet to help me sort of, I guess it was a form of method acting. And then into college, I think about my professors and teachers like Scott Jones. I think about Peter Haberman. I think about Nat Dickey, who all gave me so many different elements, um, not only in music, but again, beyond, um, and for the little bit of time that I studied uh, music education helped me figure out what to do and how to teach and how to be with students. Um, and again, all of them helped me just become a better human being. And then I think about Kelly Meyer, who 
uh, was a career counselor and helped me through still what felt like one of the biggest decisions of my life to leave music education and to go into the world of communications um, and who ended up being so many more things than a career counselor. She was a, she was a life coach and a, 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 almost a therapist in some ways. To, to all of those people, if any of them listen to this, I just want to say thank you for, for being you. And I guess more importantly, you know, part of why this is on my mind right now is um, we're wrapping up a school year right now. My better half is a teacher and her last day is tomorrow. I just think we don't celebrate teachers enough. I don't think we uh, give them the true credit that they deserve. I, we definitely don't pay them enough. Um, but I just want you to think about specifically the teachers in your life and mentors who have helped to give you tools and resources and chances and opportunities and become the person that you are. And um, yeah, I just, I hope you maybe take a minute if if this has helped you think at all about some of the people who have shaped you to call up one of those people and thank them or, or send them a Facebook message or um, shoot them a text to just say, hey, I just want to say thank you for helping me become the person that I am. Um, and to anybody who might be listening to this who is a teacher, I just, I want you to know that um, I see you and I appreciate you. And I know that it hasn't been easy in the past few years as an educator, whether that's through the pandemic or dealing with all sorts of crazy um, regulations and, and pushbacks that are coming through that are preventing you from doing your job, or if it's the working conditions or, or, or whatever it is, I know it is not easy, but I do want to say, at least from this guy right here, thank you for being you, for doing what you do, um, and for the role that you play in, in helping um, students of all ages become the people that they are. I just want to say thank you. That That's all I have. Um, but just know that at least somebody's thinking about you. And for those of you transitioning into a summer, whatever that looks like for you, I hope it's an amazing one. And I hope that um, at least in small ways, you do feel appreciated and loved and respected in the communities that you're in because um, you're doing really important work. Um, and I hope you know that. I hope you feel that. Okay. Thanks for listening. I know that was a little bit rambly. It's something I get really emotional about, but um, yeah, I just wanted to share what was on my mind. That is it for today's episode of Connection Request. Please send me all feedback, questions, pitches, and takes on the end of succession and Ted Lasso to connect at shrugcontent.com. Today's show is, of course, produced by Shrug Content. We make podcasts, websites, and other internet-related content. You can learn more at shrugcontent.com. And you can find me, Joel Lehman, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and the show on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening.